Under the Controlled Substances Act and Corollary State Law, the growth, trafficking, sale, possession, or consumption of psychedelics may be a felony punishable by imprisonment, fines, forfeiture of property, or some combination thereof. Psychedelical X is for general information only. Information provided on the show does not constitute legal advice, nor does your listening to the show create an attorney-client relationship with the host. Hello, I'm attorney Gary Smith, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Psychedelic Alex, The Law of Psychedelics, my ongoing exploration of the question of the law of psychedelics. Good, Madeline McElwain, I want to welcome you to Psychedelic Alex. How are you? Thanks, Gary. I'm doing wonderful today. And yourself? I am, I am doing fine as well. Uh, for the audience's benefit, uh, Madeline comes to me and, and to the show, oddly enough, through the Psychedelic Bar Association, but also indirectly, uh, and Madeline will get into this, of course, she works with DanceSafe, and I had run into DanceSafe while I was in Las Vegas last year, and actually I have here on the, the desk here, Mitchell's card, and, and Mitchell is the executive director, or at least was at the time, I'm hoping that's still true. He is, it yeah. It's still true. Okay, so I, I had intended to reach out to Mitchell, hoping to get somebody from DanceSafe on the show, and then you and I banged into each other at the Psychedelic Bar Association, and then I learned, well, heck, you're you're like the number two person there. So I'm like, perfect. So here you are, Madeline McElwain. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Carrie. Yeah, yeah. Um, I am chiefly legal officer of DanceSafe. Um, I will note, though, that our titles are a little bit irrelevant. What we're really trying to do at DanceSafe um, is think about and reinvent ways to organize. Um, and so we do, there are natural hierarchies within the organization, but within the executive team, um, myself, Mitchell, and then our two other colleagues comprise the executive team. Um, we're actually very linear. Um, and so we uh, work very collaboratively. Um, together. So we, we collaborate on decision-making. We have um, our salaries are all the same. And so what we're trying to do is. Which um, by the way, is better than sharing one salary. It is. <laughs> exactly. Um, and you know, it, it, something like that has comes with its own challenges, but we really are trying to reimagine um, a way to come together as an organization that gets rid of, you know, the top-down decision-making. Um, again, naturally, there will be some hierarchies within the organization with different bands of, of levels of, of jobs and stuff. But I did just, um, you know, I in my title, I might be considered, you know, oh, maybe number two in the organization, but we really are um, very linear. The leadership is very linear in that way. And so um, it's really exciting to um, kind of be a case study in this area and the way that we're organizing. Um, we take a very human-centered approach. Um, when I came into DanceSafe, and I'll get into what DanceSafe is here in yeah, a I was, minute. I was going to say, our, our audience may or may not know yet what DanceSafe is, which is the whole well, point of bringing you here so we can talk about it because it's awesome. <laughs> Well, I'll leave them on their seats, you know, I, while I talk a little bit about our, org, our organizational structure and how yes. we're imagining that. Um, uh Oh, you know, and I maybe I just lost that thought. Oh, uh, that was my fault. I I, That's okay. I derailed your thought train. That was my fault. Sorry. <laughs> okay. No, no, it's good. Um, I can. Oh, I was going to say what we're doing is we're we're taking a really human centered approach at Dance Safe, and um, a little bit about me. I was, um, you know, building my own cannabis law practice in Colorado, um, and I got simultaneously disenfranchised with. The practice of laws and institution protecting the status quo, <laughs> um, and uh, the you know budding cannabis industry in Colorado, um, and so I had this like quarter life crisis, and I stopped practicing law. I stopped, you know, I totally dumped the billable hour, and I started walking dogs and driving Uber to make ends meet, um, knowing that I, you know. In leading up to this cannabis law practice, I was involved in drug policy reform through Students for Sensible Drug Policy. And, um, you know, I, I felt like I wanted to do something a little more direct action, a little more on the ground, something that was a little more rewarding. And so um, 
I, I landed landed a gig here at, at Dance Safe, and it's been a really incredible journey because it's was you know I remember um, being hired, and I asked Mitchell, you know, hey, what do I wear to the office? So we're a fully remote team now, but at the time we saw an office, and he goes. For all I care, you can wear, you know, your festival gear to work. And I, you know, I'm coming from a private firm setting into into this um, environment where it was it was pretty like radically expressive. And so, um, but that was five years ago. And then those five years, I've been able to be a, um, a thought partner in in how we're start how we became to organize, you know, how we are coming to organize together. Um, and so it's yeah, it's really exciting, and I'm looking forward to seeing where this takes us and um you know like we're experimenting with um an unlimited paid time off model like i really do think that i have i you know in in any other job i probably wouldn't have the space that i have to show up wholly um and to do the, the level of healing that i've been able to embark on because it does take a lot of um space you know to to heal on this level and um so we really just we want to we want people to show up holy. We want there to be room for the human experience. We know that that human experience can be beautiful and ugly, and there could be struggles involved, especially as we're moving to a new paradigm. Um, and so, yeah, and, and so that's why, you know, Mitchell is our executive director. He does a lot of, of, of what a traditional executive director would do but when it does come to decision-making. Um, we, we work together in, in what we call an advice-seeking process, um, so that we can, yeah, just be a little bit more collaborative in, in how things are are run in the organization. And so, so you'll see, um, you know, if you were in the middle of redoing our website, but if you go on there, you'll see the our our team is laid out. Our titles are there, but the titles again are a little irrelevant because we wear many many hats and um, we all operate within certain areas of. Um, about operations and so um, let, let me ask you if I can yeah. just divert away yeah. from from DanceSafe just for a moment because you you said something that resonated with me deeply was that you you kind of hit this uh, emotional wall in practice and that's really common I've certainly been there myself I've been in the trenches yeah. now almost 30 years uh, but for the for the younger attorneys who who listen to the show uh, they may not have experienced this yet or they may already be in the depths of it and not realize there are alternatives so I'm really, really happy to hear that not only did you hit that wall and pulled away from practice because of it, but you found your way back in through an alternative path. And and that's a really encouraging story, I think, for the young, well, even the older attorneys at home, I guess. Uh, there's multiple paths. You don't have to just be a lawyer working at a firm or in a traditional law practice. There's lots of other ways to use the degree. So there is. Yeah, no, absolutely, Gary. You're right. And you know, um, it might come with a pay cut. Oh, it will. <laughs> uh, I mean, it most almost inevitably will come with yeah. a pay cut, you know, and and that's okay if it's you know, it's it's not worth any amount of money if if you really are feeling this disconnect from from the practice and I'll be completely honest. Um, it took me a while. So when I got hired at Dance Safe five years ago, I was actually hired as deputy director. So then, in that point, this was when we were still kind of that that top down model. I really was the number two of the organization, working directly under Mitchell. Um, Mitchell and I have very complementary skill sets, um, you know, and and I was still. It's taken me really pretty much up until my my reintroduction into lawyer dominated spaces through the psychedelic bar association to be able to come to amends with that, that lawyer, the identity that is the lawyer. Um, I had strayed, I had strayed so far from that, I, that part of me um, just based on the conditioning of the like institution of the practice of law, you know, like I, 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 wasn't I didn't feel like I could ever show up wholly myself. Like I felt like I had to compartmentalize parts of who I was in order to show up as a lawyer um, in like tradition in a traditional setting and in a traditional space. I absolutely uh, get what you're saying there, and you're right. You're, especially in um, litigation. Oh God, you know? yeah. and that's what oh, I do. Yeah. That's that's what I do. So yeah, hundred percent. Totally. 
Yeah, totally. And, and, and I struggled with that my whole life. I, um, having to compartmentalize or not being able to nourish, um, more authentic parts of myself, which ultimately led me down to this, like, you know, really regimented, um, like career oriented driven path as, as a lawyer. And, and I wouldn't change it for the world. That really is how I got into activism and into drug policy reform and harm reduction, um, and it was really traumatic for me. <laughs> um, you know, they're, they're drilling you from, from day one and, uh, you know, like in a two, two day long orientation, like look to the person to, to the right of you, look to the, at the person to the left of you. Like one of you will be gone after the first semester. Like it's just, it's highly adversarial in nature. It's very competitive. And, um, and yeah, I just, I kept, I kept trying to show up more holy and authentic and was getting feedback that that wasn't okay. And so I felt like I had these parallel identities, you know, I had like my true self, authentic self that I was learning, like rediscovering in this moment. And then like the, the lawyer and, and they were just kept running parallel. I couldn't never get them to intersect. And um, I think that that was Part, that was a like a huge reason why I was like I you know I, I can't do this and and this and so um, but it's been really you know but I stayed I stayed with it I stayed licensed I you know I've been keeping up with my CLEs knowing that there's a a part there's a place for that part of me I just had to rediscover it and and Gary I'll tell you um, coming into the psychedelic bar association and this is was like I said this is my first introduction in five years back into lawyer dominated spaces. And it's been extremely, extremely restorative for me um, because I feel like I finally found, found my people in the profession. Um, you know, we're, we're opening our sessions with, you know, we're opening our meetings with grounding, like grounding exercises and breathing and just being really intentional and in process. And, um, and it just, I feel really, aligned and um and then the way that i'm sh i actually feel like i can show up wholly now in these spaces and i'm receiving now i'm receiving positive feedback in, in how i'm showing up and so it's it's really um it's been really wonderful yeah. well you you found your tribe <laughs> yeah absolutely i did i really did excellent well i'm i'm really happy to hear that because it's important to have satisfaction in your career and your life and you shouldn't have to choose between them yeah no absolutely um and so I'm just happy that I stuck with it. You know, it's been a long journey, but I'm feeling, and, and you know, and so in that journey, uh, starting as deputy director within Dance Safe, I, I um, really was have in the past couple of years really been stepping into that chief legal officer role. Um, I, I didn't really have space to do much legal stuff when I first started at Dance Safe. I was one of three employees, like. We're in a um, really are a grassroots organization at heart. Our founder was an anarchist who was organizing in Berkeley. And so there were not a whole lot of like administrative processes in place when I joined. And so I had the skill set. And Well, it would um, hurt the anarchy brand to have processes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and, and we, we were founded on a consensus model, too. That that shifted once the national office started to grow a little bit bigger. But um, okay. yeah, so I, I didn't really have a lot of space really to, to step into a full legal role with the dance safe, although it was really the board knew it was useful to have an attorney, an attorney on staff, you know, dance safe operates in a really, um, in a really gray area. A lot of the time, uh, Indeed so it, does. <laughs> it, it, it does, it does. And I'll get into that too later. Yeah. I, um, by the way, the audience yeah. is probably going to murder us because we keep hinting around all about dance safe, but you haven't said a word yet about what it is. <laughs> well, it's funny because you were like, yeah, you know, I know you want to talk about yourself. You yeah. want, and I was like, no, I just want to talk about dance safe, but it, um, <laughs> But in knowing that there will be other attorneys and other young attorneys that listen to this, I think, I think this context is really important. Oh, for so, sure. For sure. For um, sure. So I guess without further ado, we'll talk. <laughs> I'll let everyone know what dance safe is. Uh, well, now I've shamed <laughs> you into it, so we shouldn't say a word. <laughs> I know. Go ahead. Go <laughs> ahead. You've come this far, Madeline. Why, why stop now? Right, right. Yeah. If if, if y'all haven't already Googled it by now, because the suspension was so, so like, What the hell is she talking about? Tell us. I, I want to dance safe. Is it um, shoes? 
Yeah. So, all right, here's my elevator pitch about Dance Safe is. Um, we're a, a 501c3 public health nonprofit um, that promotes health and safety within the nightlife ecosystem. Um, so we are a harm reduction organization. We really are a social justice organi- organization at our heart and soul. Um, we our, our, our goal is to change the narrative around partying and drug use um, and, and in like cultural settings as well. And so we um, we're basically here to bridge the gap in, in drug education um, and to provide um, peer-based education that, and to be a safe space for folks to um, a talk about really highly taboo topics. And so we're a chapter-based organization. We have trained volunteers all over the United States. Um, we set up, and again, I, we, we really are, um, our services are really based in within the nightlife ecosystem. So we're um, at music festivals and concerts, nightlife venues, art, art, um, events, um, conferences, and we have we set up a booth. We have a branded pop up ten by ten. Our our brand, which just got a refresh, um, has earned a lot of goodwill in the twenty years we've been around. Um, just just from our presence in you know the festival and rave communities, electronic music communities, and so um, yeah, our chapters will go to event events in their um, area and pr- just be a really solid, safe presence on site. Um, we distribute free harm reduction tools, so we're handing out earplugs um, coupled with hearing protection literature like you don't want to get tinnitus it's really terrible Uh, so protect your ears Um, we hand out electrolytes and free water coupled with information about dehydration and stroke Um, we and heat stroke rather Um, we hand out hundreds of thousands of free condoms every year coupled with consent literature and sexual health literature Um, you know, we're, we have our, our drug education literature that uh, Gary has framed back there. We, we've got Ooh. some really Ooh, um, beautiful art. Hold some of these <laughs> up to the camera. Yeah, let's, let's talk yeah, about that. Yeah, so. those guys. So we've got those displayed at the events too. Yeah, so we've got cannabis, um, I've got MDMA. Yeah. I've got LSD. <laughs> The card, the cards, people, not the actual substances. And then on the backs, of course, are uh, uh, information, lots of information about each substance. So each card, um, you don't look nearly old enough to know what these are. But when I was a kid, there were, this was the 1970s, there were these um, through the mail kits of information cards for kids. And like there'd be a series of just like different animals. So you'd get an animal card and there'd be a picture of the animal and on the back, a bunch of information about the animal. So this reminded me of those cards from the seventies, but that's what these are. These are, you know, pictures of the different drug uh, with, I I guess some related graphics, but on the back is just lots of great data about them. And you've got a complete set. You've got like every, you've got psilocybin, MDMA, LSD, cannabis, all of that, right? Yeah, we, we don't have, it's not all, it's not exhaustive. We have chosen what are generally um, the most popular or most used like recreational substances in the party setting. Um, You know, we don't, our goal is to break down stigma. Like our goal is to deliver factual science based, non-biased information um, so that folks can make informed uh, like health, health and healthy lifestyle decisions, you know, um, and so, yeah, we have the art that pops. That's really to draw people in. It's a really great point of conversation. Again, it's it's um, trying. We're trying to portray the drug in a way that's non-stigmatizing, and and um, and we're also trying to capture like what is like the the anecdotal experience of that substance too. So you know, maybe you resonate with with some of that artwork if you go check it out on our website. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and, and, and it, is, it is worthy to hang on walls. I do have some it, up, up on the wall here. It is, and we actually have now posters of of that artwork too. So oh. if someone wants to display it a little bit bigger, yeah, I'll um, tell you what. If you could print like full T shirts where the whole T shirt is the graphic, that would be. <laughs> I would buy those. Hey, noted, noted. <laughs> we are going to be looking into some new merch. So ah, well, there, <laughs> there you go. Um, probably important to, to emphasize too. Um, Dance Safe does not. 
promote drug use. You promote safety for people who've already made that decision, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah, we, we, we're moving into the realm, though, of benefit maximization. So we, again, we're not promoting drug use per se. We're not condoning it. But we are, we are recognizing that drug use can actually be beneficial. Um, it can create connection with others. It can, it can help with your mental health, you know, like there's, so, so we're moving out of this more conservative realm of we neither condemn nor condone into, and then starting to embrace in our situation, in our place of privilege as an organization, we are starting to embrace um, the, the risk reduction and the benefit maximization. So not only is it, how can you be safer using, using these substances because all drug use is inherently risky, like all drug use, there's no such thing as safe drug use. There's such thing as safer drug use. And like, how can we promote like the benefits of that drug use also, you know, Um, even in the wrong circumstance, aspirin can kill you. So sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And so, yeah, so, so, and a part of that and what, what is probably our largest service or our largest program um, is our drug checking services. So that looks like we could, we do onsite drug checking where we're given express permission from the promoters um, we offer, and then we also manufacture and sell our own drug checking kits to the general public. So you can purchase those at dancesafe.org. Um, those are the color metric reagents that law enforcement has been using for decades in the field to identify substances. Um, we, we promote them and sell them to people who use drugs. Um, we also are the non, largest non-wholesaler distributor um, of the fentanyl, the BTNX fentanyl test strips, which has been um, a harm reduction industry standard to screen your substances for fentanyl. Um, and as we know, the that has become a, a crisis in the United States, in the United States specifically is, is opioid overdoses, mostly due to fentanyl adulteration. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, you know, and we're, we're seeing fentanyl now in non-opioid substances, um, and so it's especially risky for opioid naive individuals, you know, who are buying cocaine or ketamine or MDMA um, because it is so potent. And so um, so that's another um, program of ours is the fentanyl test strip program. And, um, and then what we've been able to offer now, we're the first, this is really exciting, um, we're the first harm reduction organization in the United States that's been able to offer advanced testing technology on site at events, um, which means we have access to and are utilizing what's called an FTIR spectrometer. And I'm a, I'm a lawyer, I'm not a scientist. So, um, you know, the 10,000 foot view is that it's, um, it, use, it uses infrared spectrometry um, to provide confirmatory uh, data. So you can actually analyze a sample and ha- know virtually everything that is in that sample. And so the reagents are really limited. Um, the presumptive testing, you're basically testing for what's most prevalent in a substance. Um, with the FTIR testing, you can really, you can see a breakdown of, of what's in the sample, including common adulterants, which is huge because we, we've never been able to tell that with the reagents, you know, neither method tests for purity or potency, but we are able to now provide a lot more data to, to folks. Yeah. Um, so and the chemical know. tests are specific to the chemical it's looking for, but these spectral tests will tell you the complete panoply of, of different substances within that sample. Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Gary, it, considering that um, the substances are within the library, we, we know that there's new psychoactive substances or NPSs coming out onto, onto the market, um, you know, at, all the time. And so it, it is, it's a diligent process to, to stay up with, with what's, what's new on the market so that we can keep the library um, the most up to date as possible. So, um, but for the most part, it really is, we are really are able to, to see what's in there. And um, sometimes we'll get a mystery substance and we'll need to send that into um, a lab for GCMS um, verification, which is like, 
the granddaddy of of drug checking is is with the the um the GCMS machine, but that's hundreds of thousands of dollars. So oh, yeah. um and not really yeah, not really um feasible to use. Yeah, I, uh, the, the lab equipment is outrageously expensive. I've I've got some clients that run testing labs here in Arizona, and oh my god, mm. oh hundreds yeah. of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands. Yeah, yeah, I know. And um, and at Dance Safe's inception, so one of the earliest programs of Dance Safe, so we were founded in 1998. Um, we we did start an online um, lab an online um, lab called ecstasydata.org. It has recently been changed to drugsdata.org, but it is a DEA licensed laboratory where you can submit samples anonymously. Um, you, you choose like you can, you choose like a, a identifier, like you choose like a, a number or a series of numbers and letters to, so that you know how to identify the substance, but you send it in anonymous, anonymously to the lab. It's a GCMS lab. Um, they're allowed to handle the substances again because they're DEA licensed. Um, and then they analyze the substance and then post all the results publicly on their website, drugsdata.org. Um, so you can also, you know, use that, that method. I think it's like a hundred bucks to submit a sample. Um, but that's another, another way to be able to like really know what, what you have, especially if you can't really identify anything with the reagents. Mm. Where, where is that lab based? Uh, somewhere in California, I believe. Mm. Uh, I, I think the, the address is, is in California. Yeah. Okay. Well, the, <laughs> the anonymous part's going to be critical for multiple reasons, including if you're not yes. in California, you're sticking drugs in the mail. That's a, that's a felony itself. So yeah, just be careful yeah. kids. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's out in the, um, the lab is now run by Arrowwood, which I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with. I'm Ooh. sure a lot of your. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, just, just in case for you, for the kids at home who don't know about Arrowwood, you need to know about Arrowwood. Yes. Um, <clears throat> the oldest and biggest collection online of just, psychedelic drug information there is they they've been around mm -hmm. for probably 20 years now 30 years yeah um, yeah i think so yeah they've been, they've been collecting data since day one and from what i understand like it's the dea's favorite go-to site it's better than their own database oh 100 percent. yeah yeah it's it's fantastic it's filled with anecdotal in, uh, information um, it's, it's, so the education that you can find on dance safe's website is like pretty pretty basic um, it's, it's really good information, but if you want to go, want to take your learning to the next level, I definitely recommend Arrowhead. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Yeah. So yeah, I'm probably. willing to guess that Dan Safe's biggest problem besides fundraising, cause you're, you're a nonprofit is probably banging into the paraphernalia laws, huh? Mm -hmm. Am I guessing correctly? Well, well, let me, let me just, there's a caveat to the fundraising piece that I'll address first. We actually, 90% of our revenue comes from the sale of our drug checking kits and the mm -hmm. fentanyl test strips. So we very, very fortunately, knock on wood, have never really had to rely on, fun on private funding or public public funding for our operations because we, it's, it's quite brilliant actually. The sale of our drug checking kits or the harm reduction products that we have is directly related to our exempt purpose under 501c3 of the Internal Revenue Code. So we don't have to pay income on that. Um, so not to say that we like accept donations and we need donations and we have funders and, and, that's, like, um, and that's great, but we, we do feel very fortunate to be able to sustain ourselves with, with the sales of our drug checking kits. Um, but I will still plug donate to dance safe. <laughs> oh yeah. T take the money, Madeline, always yeah. take the money. Cause remember money's just a tool. It's neither good nor evil. It's what you do with that tool that makes the difference and you're doing something good with it. So take exactly. the money. Yeah, exactly. It just goes back into the organization so we can continue offering um, our services for free. So, for sure. uh, but yes, but yes. So there are one of the biggest policy barriers for our services are the drug are the drug paraphernalia laws at the state level um i would say that 
you know, well, so there was the model legislation drafted in like 1972 or 73 that was adopted mostly across the board by all the states um, with some a few variations. Um, but until recently, the drug checking kits, there's there's a specific set of language within the statute, uh, the paraphernalia statute that um, names specifically equipment used to test or analyze schedule one substances um, for purity potency, you know, the, it's very specific language that makes it really difficult to argue anything else, but that, you know, the drug checking kits are illegal drug paraphernalia under this specific language of the definition. Um, And so that has been a huge barrier. Um, And dance safe, has been working hard to address that. And I should say, DanceSafe is an organization, but really um, our policy change coordinator, Hannah Procell, has been doing an amazing job at building out um, our tested advocacy program, which hasn't been fully launched yet to the public. That is going to be when we do our grand reveal of our new website, the tested advocacy program will be launched at that time. Um, But what we're doing and what Hannah has been building out is um, basically... Uh, an entire resource kit that will include live webinars on organizing and lobbying, et cetera, um, so that folks in their state can engage in grassroots organizing around changing drug checking paraphernalia laws specifically. Um, because, you know, there there's criminal or civil penalties for, for possession or distribution of, of those kit of the kits and the kits are life-saving tools you know they're legitimate public health tools and so it's even the deterrence factor is so strong that it's even prevented um public health officials um you know or state-run um public health offices from wanting to possess or offer drug checking services for that reason and so um in response to the uh, the you know the overdose crisis that we're um experiencing there has been momentum around um, the around the changing of drug, the definition of drug paraphernalia specifically, and so um, you're seeing states like Colorado and Nevada, and New Mexico, um, localities like DC, and um, making changing the law related to testing the, that testing and analyzing language specifically to either expressly exempt you know, uh, drug checking tools like fentanyl test strips or to just remove that language entirely. Um, And so, yeah. Yeah. So we're seeing um, momentum in this area regarding this type of policy reform um, to to eliminate that barrier. Yeah. And and let's talk a little bit about the political philosophy behind it, because my my understanding has always been that the test kits were lumped in with the other air quotes, drug paraphernalia, simply because the politicians who put these statutes in place didn't care about the end user. They, they were taking the position that, hey, if you're using something that's illegal, uh, you can just take that risk and maybe you have the experience you thought you were going to have, or maybe you just die. We don't care because you shouldn't have been taking it anyway. That's pretty much their, their philosophical approach, isn't it? I mean, I would imagine so just based on the history of drug policy and the drug poli- and the drug hysteria, yeah. you know, of this country. Sure. Absolutely. And not only is that a mean spirited policy, it's yeah. counterproductive to yeah. the very drug safety goals that lead one to pass a law banning a drug. You know, if you're trying to protect people from it, then why on earth would you set a situation in place where somebody could still suffer harm when you could just as easily give them a path away from that harm. Yeah, no, absolutely, Gary. I I think that that's something that's been inherently flawed in American drug policy. I mean, from, from the, its inception, you know, I mean, we have a a vast, vast history that of prohibition, you know, of of drug prohibition that is rooted in, in racism and, you know, homophobia and like, you know, all the isms that you can think of, you know, pick a minority group that, you know, that was threatening to the United States government. And and that's where like, you know, a drug policy originates from. Right. And so, um, and, and, and it, what it is, is it's rooted in, um, it's rooted in punitive measures. It's rooted in, in criminalizing drug use and demonizing and ostracizing and alienating drug users, um, or, or specific, like, or specific populations of humans. And, and it's not rooted in public 
health. <laughs> and really, drug use is a public health issue. It's not a criminal issue. And there are so many other places in the world, you know, where they actually view drug use as a, a public health you know, issue and they, you know, and it's not criminal. And so um, I think you, you just named it. Like there's just, it's mean spirited. It's, it's not effective drug policy and it just perpetuates harm. Um, And so, and I think we're starting to see a shift. I know we're starting to see a shift in that, Um, you know, it took, you know, it took the white face of, of privilege, you know, um, opioid users or, you know, it, it, it took a bunch of privileged white people dying for the narrative to shift, unfortunately, um, when it came now that we're in this in the middle of this like opioid crisis. Um, but it's like it's finally starting to happen. And, and we really need to think about how we can shift our attitude and and, and start humanizing drug use across the spectrum, you know, Um you know, the vast majority of drug use happens recreationally, non-problematically, you know, and like, how can we bring those in who do have chaotic relationships with substances? You know, it's, um, I like to use the term or at dance, if we use the term molecular agnosticism, right? Like a, a drug is a drug. It's a molecule. A molecule is like you said, like with money, it's not inherently good or bad, right? It's the systems and the structures and the context and the environment in which someone develops a relationship with a molecule. And there, you know, different molecules have different risk profiles, but if you think about, um, and we don't, we're trying to move away from labels like addict, um, because that's, it's actually dehumanizing and it's, we're finding now that it, um, it creates a, a barrier for people to be able to, one, it takes power away from them, but two, it creates a barrier for people to access uh, resources and to get help. And so we say people with substance use disorders, or we, t- we reference like chaotic relationships with substances, right? So we're moving away from the term addict, um, you know, but it's really is like, how can we how can we exercise the same level of compassion to to folks experiencing those chaotic relationships? Because you have to imagine, um, you know, there's so much more at play than just like, oh, someone got addicted to meth and now they're like stealing from their family and they're a terrible person. It's like, no, this this person probably has mental health issues that stems from generational trauma and, um, you know, generational poverty or, you know, inaccessibility to healthcare system, the healthcare system or our stable housing. Like, I mean, you name it. Right. Um, And so, so yeah, it, it, and those, you know, those are historically the, the, the marginalized communities where we've just like created policies and attitudes and behaviors towards them that just further alienate them. And that just exacerbates the whole problem, you know? Um, yeah, I, yeah, I absolutely get that. Cause you know, you're right. It, it, if you label people and limit how they're viewed, because you put a label on them that is itself limiting, you do diminish and dehumanize them and you do nothing to address the thing you are supposedly criticizing about them. You're just leaving them in that hole that you put them in and you're not allowing them out of it. Yeah, exactly. And so we're, we're really starting to, when I say we, uh, you know, I'm talking, you know, the, the drug policy reform, the harm reduction community, um, we're, we're starting to shift the rhetoric around how we talk about these things. So we're, we're moving to first person language, you know, so not instead of saying like drug users, we're saying people who use drugs or uh, people who inject drugs. Um, like I said, you know, people with substance use disorders. So, um, you know, so it's, it's, they're humans first, they're people first. And, and then the, the, you know, the circumstance can come after that. Um, but yeah, it is, it, it is really, it just perpetuates the stigma around um, those communities when, when we label them as addicts, you know, or as criminals or, you know, you name it. Um, so I think, so I think Gary, for for folks like us who, um, you know, and folks like like in communities like the Psychedelic Bar Association, where we really are coming from a a, a place of privilege, like it's really a, um, and then um, being able to have access to platforms like like this podcast, like I think it's really important for us to 
um, try to continue to bridge that gap between the the spectrum of people who use drugs, you know, from the, the recreational, like spiritual use over to the, the problematic or chaotic use. Like we're all on a spectrum and, um, and we can't leave out th- these other folks here on the other side of the spectrum it, for the sake of moving forward with the policies that, um, you know, are geared towards like psychedelic or spiritual use, you know, um, like how can we bring heroin into the discussions around decriminalization, right? Like it's going to be trickier because those substances are more highly stigmatized. But again, that's, it's, um, I think it's really important. Yeah, I agree. So what, what do you consider to be like Dan Safe's biggest challenges over like the next few years? Hmm. Yeah, no, that's a good question. I think um, <clears throat> I think one of the largest hurdles, and aside from uh, the state policies around drug paraphernalia that we named, um, is actually a piece of legislation that's colloquially known as the Rave Act. Um, it's the uh, it's was passed. It was sponsored by Biden in two thousand and three. Uh, it passes basically a rider to one of the, the budgets. Um, it essentially expanded the crack house laws under the Controlled Substances Act to target um, anyone who is knowingly um, maintaining a drug involved premise. And it really was to, so the, <laughs> um, the, the rave act. So it's, that's not the name of the legislation, but that's what everyone calls it because this piece of legislation tried to pass like prior as the rave act, it didn't pass, but then they just like tweaked the name and then, and like slid it in under a writer. And so it got passed anyways, but, uh, rave is an acronym for reducing Americans vulnerability to ecstasy. So it was really geared towards um, targeting like the exponential growth in recreational ecstasy use in like the the 90s, early 2000s. Um, And it creates a really large criminal and civil liability for um, venue owners or promoters. Again, anyone who can be seen as maintaining a drug involved premise. And so this is a huge hurdle for dance safe because we have, you have attorneys and insurance providers for um, the promoters, for the venue owners of the events that we are trying to be at. And if we're on site providing drug education, if we're on site providing drug checking services, you know, that's, that is almost like, you know, bar none, uh, strong evidence that the venue owner knows drug use is happening on site at, in their venue or that the promoter knows like that people are going to be using drugs at their event. Um, and so, you know, they're, they're being advised by their, by their licensed professionals or like not being able to get insured by having harm reduction on site essentially. Um, and, and you're looking at up to $250,000 in civil penalties. You're looking at like up to like, you know, 20 years in, in prison for each occur. Like it's, it's, it's just, it's asinine. And the deterrence effect of that piece of legislation is huge, even though I haven't been able to find any case law around it, except for one article that talks about one charge under the Rave Act um, during what, for what was essentially very blatant distribution happening on site at a private private music festival in the Midwest. Um, so that that lovely piece of legislation is a huge challenge for us. Mm. Yeah, and just for the non-lawyers in the audience, um, this is a broader problem than, than even what Madeline said so far. So for like the, the promoters or venue owners, they're put in the horns of a terrible dilemma of having to choose between having safety on site with groups like dance safe or possibly uh invalidating their their mortgage if they've borrowed money to buy that location or invalidating the insurance on it and consider if you're the operator of a venue you would never ever ever operate without insurance that would be insane uh Mm -hmm. the 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 value of harm or injury that could happen uh, on a place like that 
is incalculable in some instances. And if you're having to mm-hmm. choose between safety or insurance, you're going to take the insurance because it's just a smarter move. Uh, yeah. But things happen. So, yeah, it's it's a terrible choice to foist on the venue owners. So you're absolutely yeah. right, Madeline. Th- these changes need to be made at a policy level to take pressure off all these other parties. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really, it's quite asinine actually that um, the health and safety of the attendees aren't coming first in the decision-making because, you know, we are, we're a very litigious society. And like you said, Gary, the level of risk, especially um, like I was just, I was at a 25,000 person music festival um, this past uh, over Memorial day weekend and two people died you know, like, like the statistics are there, like folks are going to die on site. Um, and so the risk is really high. And so the insurance is, is vital. Um, and I will say, though, that there still are promoters. Um, it's mostly promoters, not usually the venue owners, but there are promoters who do care greatly about the safe and healthy of the attendees of their events. And so they will still have Dance Safe on site. Um, and when we are able to drug check on site, when we're giving, given express permission by the promoters, we don't engage in rogue drug checking. We're trying to build relationships. And so we only offer that service if we've been giving, given express permission. Uh, we operate um, under what's called a, deni- um, uh, a deniability model. And so it's like, and so we, um, I'm sorry, it's called a plausible deniability model. And so essentially nothing is in writing between us and the promoters. So they, everything is verbal. They, they verbally give us permission to be on site. They verbally, you know, sometimes we'll have contracts like a vendor, a vendor like contract where it will say we'll be on site, but we'll only be offering like, peer education or healthy, you know, giving out earplugs and stuff like that. But when it comes to our drug checking services specifically, um, we, that's usually never in writing and that's get that we're given the okay. And we have to do it really in like real, a really hush hush way. So we can't do it out in the open. We unfortunately can't advertise, you know, openly advertise those services in that instance. And so essentially is the agreement is, is if, you know, shit hit the fan and law enforcement came in and, and was like, Hey, you know, what are you doing? You can't do this. Like dance safe would take responsibility for it. And that's what we have to agree to do in order to be there to offer these life-saving services. And we're oftentimes working hand in hand with medical um, because we're able to provide data to medical to battle so, so that they can provide better and more tailored services for instance, um, you know, at this last festival, there was someone that medical was that so someone went to medical. They were highly agitated, you know, really, really um, just hard to to keep under control. Um, and they had said that they had taken MDMA. Well, you know, the those those symptoms really aren't, you know, you're not usually really agitated on MDMA, right? Like, yeah. And so they were able to bring the sample to dance safe to get tested. And we were like, Oh, actually this is methamphetamine. And so this person would ha- was like re- continuously redosing and, and that changed, you know, that piece of information gave medical what they needed to be able to treat this person better. Um, and so, so we really are reducing adverse medical incidences. We're reducing hospital transports and we're preventing overdose deaths. Um, and, and so when we are on site, a lot of the times law enforcement does actually know about us. Um, and they're okay with us being there because it's, you know, we're saving the taxpayer, the local taxpayers money, you know, um, and we're, we're providing a really important service. Um, yeah. Well, and being cynical about it too, you might make the difference between an officer having to write a report or not. And I'm yeah. sure they'd prefer not to. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, exactly. You know, we're, we're, we're kind of keeping things contained in a way in conjunction with medical and in conjunction with sanctuary services, um, which is, uh, you know, where someone would go if they're having a difficult experience psychologically or emotionally. Um, And so, and so, yeah, this last festival we were at, there was um, a really robust harm reduction team, which was fantastic. And so, um, 
And so it's happening and there are ways in which we can be on site. Um, and there, we do offer our services at quite a bit of music festivals. Um, but again, we're, we're kind of, um, you know, if you don't, you have to know and know Dance Safe's logo to be able to come up to, to us and ask us about the drug checking services. Yeah, and right? I was going to ask you, can you talk yeah. us through like a festival experience? I'm, I'm at a festival, I've, somebody's handed me something, and I think maybe Dance Safe is going to be there. How would I find you? How would I approach you? How would I uh, not live in mortal fear that you're really just uh, the police in disguise waiting to entrap me? Talk no, to me about all totally. That. Well, so this is, I think this, this is a great question, Gary, and I think is going to really highlight um, some of the challenges we face um, because we, a lot of the times folks aren't going to know where we are, you know, you'd have to walk around. We're not, we're, we're usually not marked on the the festival map. Um, And so you would have to just, wander around the fairgrounds the festival grounds and look for the 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 dance safe branded booth okay so um, so i am looking for a booth you are okay. we're a booth so right. it would be we're in some sort of vendor area for the most part sometimes we have to be sometimes festivals will have us on site but we're in the campsite yeah you know right. um so it would Here's be the easy. logo right that's the we just updated the logo mm. So, but the dancing human is still part of the logo in the triangle. So you'll, you'll know, even with the updated version, exactly. Yep. So you'll see our brand, we have branded flags. We have a branded pop-up. It's like, you know, a 10 by 10 by 10 or a 10 by 20 booth setup. So pictures, Um, not even words. What's that? Pictures, not words. You know, it'll say dance safe oh, on it. Okay. All right. All right. Yeah, yeah. It'll be our logo with, with dance safe. So you, you, you'll know, um, some, a lot of the times we're by medical, um, you know, the medical tent or, or some sort of, um, onsite security tent. Um, and you just come on up to the booth. <laughs> One of our trained peer educators will greet you. Um, you will be able to, to see all of the, the things that we're giving away on the, um, on the, on the table, you might need to reapply some sunscreen. You might want to grab a condom or two, grab yourself some earplugs, um, stop, you know, grab all of those fancy drug education cards. And then, by, um, by the way, earplugs and condoms, that makes for a confusing night. <laughs> it's one or the other, isn't it? <laughs> Good point. Um, and then, and then once you're there and you're talking to a peer educator, you can, 100% assume that we're safe, that we're there to help. And you can ask us, can you ch- check my drugs? And please, please, this is, this is something I have to remind people all the time. Don't pull the drugs out right then and there. <laughs> Keep the drugs nice and safe and secure. <laughs> and we, if we are offering drug checking services on site, we will take you back into um, a, an area that's either behind the booth, out of sight, or into um, a satellite um, station somewhere off-site in the fairgrounds um, or the campgrounds where we'll t- check your drugs. For so you there is somewhere. an etiquette to this. There is. Mm. Yeah, there totally is. Um, and so that's uh, that's actually not a, something that I, we don't get asked about a lot, Gary. So I think that's a really, really unique question. Um, oh, I've got more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, All right. Cool. Um, how, not that it really matters, but on average, how many people typically staff a booth? Mm. So it depends on the size of the event. Um, and the hours of operation as well. This particular event that we were at this last weekend, well, we were at a couple events this last weekend, both of which were very large events, tens of thousands of people. Um, we <clears throat> we usually have around, um, I would say, four to eight volunteers on, sh- on shift at any given time. Um, and I just think that that depends on um, how much foot traffic we think we're going to get, which depends on our location. Again, it depends on the event. Um, 
the event size. It depends on the history of our presence at the event. So we've been doing this one event that I'm referring to. Um, we This was our 10th year there. And so this is one of our largest events. People know we're part, we're now a part of that community and a part of that container that holds that experience over the weekend. And so people will do know about us. They will seek out our services. And so we, we had really robust operations this past weekend at this one event. And, um, you know, but there will be smaller one night events that our chapters will do say like in a nightclub. And like, we don't often test drugs in nightclubs, you know, it's usually just the peer education component and the um, handing out of like, of the other harm reduction tools that I've been listing off. And so, you know, if that's the case, one or two volunteers might run that for the night, you know? Um, so we really do have a range, a range there when it comes to staffing. All right. And if I'm, if I'm a promoter or, or a venue uh, operator and I want you guys to come out, how do I make that happen? Yeah, you would go to our website, dancesafe.org, um, and you would fill out uh, an event request form. And that'll, that will be sent to, to the national office and we'll be able to, it'll ask questions, you know, like when, when the event is, how large the event is, what type of services you want, et cetera. And that will, then we will be in, in touch about that. And is there any uh, size uh, minimum for an event to entice Dance Safe to show up? Um, potentially. So, you know, capacity, especially post-pandemic capacity, has um, is a barrier a lot of the times um, because we do get quite a few requests from what are, are pretty small events all over the country. Um, and if we don't have the capacity in that region or that area, um, we, we do have to turn down a lot of events um, because we don't have chapters and we don't have volunteers everywhere. Um, and so, so yeah, it, it really does depend on the size of the event and the capacity in that region or that state. Um, yeah. I'm going to guess Nebraska, not a hotbed for dance safe. No, 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 not a hotbed for dance safe, but we do have volunteers in Oklahoma, um, which, you know, have been, it's been a little dormant in that area, but yeah, not a whole lot in, in Kansas, Nebraska. Um, I would say our two or three largest or most active chapters are on the coast. So sure. um, California, our, our Los Angeles chapter is, uh, is really robust. Our Bay Area chapter is starting to get up and running again. Um, our Florida chapter is now three different chapters because it's such a, they cover such a large area. Um, mm. And then, you know, Georgia is really active. Um we have a New York city chapter as well. And the New York city chapter does service a lot of those like one night, smaller events. Um, yeah. 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 Speaking of Florida, cause you said that was like your biggest presence. I have a running bet that Miami becomes the capital for psychedelics. Oh, I, I think it's already there. I, I, I realize you know, people are looking at Berkeley and Colorado saying, but they've got such a head start, but yeah. Miami's just been exploding. Yeah, you know, that's that's really interesting, um, especially because it's in such a highly conservative state. But do you think that there will be like local policies that start changing there? Or what, oh, yeah. What, yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I was at um, Canadelic um, earlier in the year and uh, man, it, it was intensely popular. The event was well attended and just the varieties of things that were out on tables. And I'm not going to say what, um, wow, just let's leave it there. Uh, cool. and, and I think a lot of it, it's really due to the airport. I think because the Miami hub is a connection to central and South America. And so many of these plant medicines mm -hmm. come from central and South America that mm -hmm. that airport just happens to be, uh, I think the attractor. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, Miami has always been a hub for, for nightlife and for partying. And um, yeah, I've been, Miami's been coming up a lot for me in, in my discussions. See, yeah. see, I'm not yeah. crazy. I'm not crazy. No, no. Yeah. Well, that's enjoy it while move. you've got, cause Miami's going to be under the ocean in 10 years anyway. So <laughs> en enjoy your rain while it lasts, Florida. <laughs> there you go. 
No, I'm a, I think I'm pretty safe. I'm a, I'm at the, in the highest incorporated city in the United States, uh, in Leadville, Colorado, Ooh. at 10,200 feet above sea level. So when everyone else gets swallowed by the ocean, I'll, I'll be, uh, I'll be hanging tight and dandy up here. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're at 3000 feet here in the middle of the Sonoran desert. So I think I'm safe from the oceans as well. <laughs> so we'll still be able to visit each other. That's nice. Yeah, no, that would be nice. <laughs> the desert is a wonderful, wonderful place. Uh, considering I grew up in a wintry climate, yeah, for sure. Mm. Yeah, I'm. I'm uh, Where did you grow up, Gary? Uh, born and raised just outside of New York City, and then went to college okay. in upstate New York near the Canadian border. So I went from really bad weather to much worse weather. Oh my gosh! Oh, that the lake effect weather up there is is miserable. Yeah. Well, I described it as eight months of winter and four months of mud. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, I get about eight months of winter up here in the Rockies, but that's, it's dry, dry, cold. It's champagne powder. It's, it's, it's okay. When you get me into that really wet cold, if mm. it gets below 55 degrees, I am miserable. Well, <laughs> so. that's, that's the East coast. That's why I left. Yeah, it does build a lot of character, though. I, I, I have a lot of friends from, from upstate New York and the oh. Rochester area. And uh, well, really rich in character. <laughs> as, as do I. As do I. Yeah. <laughs> Fun stuff. Well, we're heading at the top of the hour here. So um, any final thoughts? Um, I just, I'm feeling compelled to just do one more plug for Dance Safe. Well, do, um, do three you know, more plugs for Dance Safe. You can do that. <laughs> There's, there's so many ways to get involved. If you um, are really called to, you know, to care for your community um, and be, you know, a peer educator or a community drug checker, or um, you just want to get involved in the movement somehow or make a difference, um, you know, there's so many different ways you can do that. You go to dancesafe.org again, um, find out, you know, there's, there's a place for you where you say get involved. Um, you can donate money, tax-deductible donations to the 501c3. Um, you can take our volunteer training course. It's a really great educational experience. Um, even if you don't intend to volunteer, you can become a peer educator within your own circles. Um, it's just really important for us to start uh, talking honestly about drugs um, and about the risks that are there, especially with the fentanyl adulteration. Um, always carry Narcan on you. Always, always carry Narcan, which reverses opioid overdoses. Never use alone. Um, if you are going to use alone, please let someone know where you are, what you're going to do, what your intentions are. Um, do your research, know about set and setting, really, really important ways to set up your environment to maximize the benefits of your experience. And um, yeah, just be safe out there, folks. Mm. You know, that was final word. That was like a thousand words, but they were all great. <laughs> Uh, Madeline, spot on. I, I agreed with everything you just said. Um, safety matters and you all can make a difference. And there are careers to be had in this area. So if your passion is safety and you also have a passion for paying rent, you can do both. <laughs> That's right, Carrie. Yeah. Don't, don't feel like, you know, especially if you took the legal career route, don't feel like you're stuck. You're, you're not, there's a lot of opportunity uh, for your involvement in this area and just for for anyone, you know, you can make a career out of out of drug policy reform and harm reduction. Like it's it's there. Um, just start getting involved at, at the local level. If you have a local harm reduction organization that's on the ground or a syringe exchange, um, start there and and volunteer and just and get your feet wet. It's it's really rewarding work. Agreed. And also, folks, if you're uh, if you are attorneys and you're inclined towards the practice of psychedelic law or you're interested in psychedelic law, you can also join the Psychedelic Bar Association. Madeline and I are both members and we're both on the law and regulatory committee. And amongst things we are working on on the committee include drafting legislation to try to change these laws. So we've got some of the best minds in the country, and I mean that quite literally, on these subjects, working on exactly these reform issues to try to create principled, balanced policy that does everything that the public needs in the way of, of matching safety with access. Yeah. Yeah, that's exciting work, y'all. <laughs> For sure. So please do come join us. And Madeline, I really appreciate your time. 
Yeah. Thanks so much, Gary. This was wonderful. Thanks. I enjoyed it. And you're going to come back. You don't know that, but you're coming back. All right. <laughs> Looking forward to it. All right. Thanks. Have a great weekend. You too. Take care. Bye. Have a question about psychedelics and the law? You're welcome to submit them. Please send your questions to admin at psychedelicalex.com. Submission of questions is not an assurance that they will be used on the show. Also, please be aware that neither the submission of a question nor a response creates an attorney-client privilege between you and the show's host, nor does an answer constitute legal advice. Information provided is for general purposes only. If you need legal counsel, you should hire competent counsel in your community. Thank you.